episode 215 of the PJ Archive is an interview I did with the English singer-songwriter and musician Sam Brown, best known for the excellent late 80s hit single Stop. The daughter of 1960s pop star Joe Brown and top session singer Vicky Brown, Sam was only 14 when she sang backing vocals on the final studio album by The Small Faces. She went on to do backing vocals for other distinguished artists such as Spandau Ballet, Pink Floyd and George Harrison. Aside from Stop, Sam's string of solo hits included Can I Get a Witness, Kissing Gate and With a Little Love. Very sadly, in 2007, Sam suffered serious problems with her voice, after which she stopped singing live. She's gone on to become a teacher of the ukulele and run various ukulele clubs. I interviewed Sam in Surrey in late 2022, when she was promoting her first studio album since 2007, entitled Number 8. I began by asking her about the bizarre coincidence involving the initial letters of all her albums thus far. How your first eight albums, this is the eight, <laughs> spell out your name. It is absolutely, and you weren't aware of it? I swear, honestly, I had no idea. I got up to O, so it was the... Sixth. Was the, the sixth yeah, yes, the sixth. So the sixth album I knew, so the O I knew. Um, up until then I had no idea and I was doing a gig. So one of my fans came up to me afterwards and said, it's really clever what you're doing with the albums. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, well, stop, April Moon, 43 minutes, yes. box, reboot. And I, I literally did not have a clue. I was astounded. <laughs> so when the fan pointed it out to you, what did you think? Did you think, how the heck is that? <laughs> well, I did think that, yes. <laughs> I had no idea at all. But then, of course, I was faced with the decision of, now that I know, do I continue? I mean, it would have been a bit curmudgeonly, wouldn't it, to say, oh, well, I'm not doing that anymore, you know. But, um, no, it was really good, and I sort of put it out there, and lots of people sent suggestions in for the, for the O album. Yeah. So now you've got to the end of your name. No. What happens next? Well, presumably, assuming this is a success, which I'm sure it will be. <laughs> what, what's the plan with the initial letters of the album? Well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose I could just go on to numbers. Couldn't yeah. I? I mean, people have made lots of suggestions. I could do Antra. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I'll probably just not think about it anymore you know yeah. but uh, it, it is odd because it does I, I think especially because I've lost my voice and this is the sort of final album if you like you know it's the eighth album it's the last letter of my name it's quite a nice kind of rounding off of things yeah. I think in a way I'm not saying that I'm not going to do anything again because I will but um, yeah it's interesting it's almost like a new start isn't it when you told your friends and family when you'd been told, did you ring them all up and say, I can't believe this? <laughs> I don't think I thought that my family would be particularly interested. <laughs> it is fascinating. Though. It is, isn't it? It's one of those, is it serendipitous? Is that the right word? Or, I don't know. Uh, yeah, very, very weird, very strange. I mean, I'm quite a pragmatic person. But I was watching um, an interview that you did, and they asked you about where stop came from. And you used the expression, it just kind of came out of the sky. Mm. So I wondered if you are quite a spiritual person, or someone who's open to whatever life is really happening. Um, I'd like to think that I'm in touch with my spiritual self, but there are definitely people who are more in touch with their spiritual selves. My life is quite a practical, structured life, and I think I'm probably quite down to earth about things. But I would, you know, refute the idea that, that spirituality and, and your soul and how we feel about things and imagining things, that they're not there. I would never say that. I think that's, you know, spirituality is a part of life, isn't it? It covers a massive, broad range of things as well, doesn't it? It's well known that you lost your voice in 2007. Mm. 
And we assume then there would be no more releases from Sam Brown. Yeah. So how has this happened, that you have a new album out? Well, before that, we had to have the W, so we've got Off the Moment, and then we've got Wednesday the Summer of April, which is a live show that we recorded back in 2004. We mixed that, and then there was this album. So it, it happened in lockdown, as so many other things did. And um, I have a friend called Danny Shogger, who's a lovely little North London bloke. He's a keyboard player, uh, rather a piano player, and he's worked with all sorts of people. He, he's a fantastic musician. And we've been writing since I was about 18 or 19. And he said, well, look, why don't we do some writing online, you know? And we did, every Tuesday we wrote, and we just ended up with an album. And for me, it was a difficult thing to do because I always wrote using my voice. So I would sit down at the piano and maybe sing a melody or pick up a ukulele and sing a, a lyric idea or, you know. So it was my writing, so it was sort of intrinsic to my writing. My voice was a part of the writing process. And I think also losing my voice was a big slap in the face and it was not an easy thing to deal with and I just parked my creative self elsewhere if that makes sense mm -hmm. I didn't want to do anything creative, I didn't want to do music, I didn't want to play the piano anymore I didn't play any instruments I mean I teach the ukulele but as far as playing for myself or playing with a view to writing I just haven't done it at all and I started to get a few ideas just really for youth clubs because I felt I should write some ukulele songs and when Danny suggested it, I said okay so we started the first couple of songs were a bit rubbish but not bad and I'd already started doing electronic stuff at this point so I'd written a, an electronica sort of piece an mm -hmm. instrumental piece mm -hmm. so I said I'd quite like to explore this because it's kind of I can't sing so you know we might as well do something completely different and we did and it worked and after about the sixth song we'd written, I put my voice into an auto-tune program called Melodyne. And when I tuned it up, it all really came together. It all fell into place. Because although it was very out of tune, it was out of tune. Because I can't sing in tune. So it's just slightly under what it should be. So I tuned it up, and then I thought, oh, OK, well, now I can add a harmony. Because all you have to do is move it up in, in the auto-tune program. And that sort of led me into a, another world. It, it meant I could be creative with my voice again. It does seem anything is possible with computers now. Would that be right in your opinion? Yes, I think it would, but I think it does. I mean, one of the things that's been interesting is people say, well, it might be, you know, processed, but it still sounds like you. That's quite interesting. I, I mean, you can create anything, can't you? There's this new... Isn't there a new... Um, issue with AI art. Have you heard about that? No. no. Okay, so, yeah, you can do anything on the computer, but this record sounds like me. It doesn't oh. sound like someone else. It uh, sounds like a very different version of me. I don't know if you've heard it or not. No, not yet. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but I've heard your hits many times, and <laughs> your voice, as well as being extraordinary, always seemed like a very different, challenging voice. There's a lot of layers to your singing, and you really gave it your all, and it's quite a raspy voice. Mm. So I don't think it seemed that surprising that it would fail you eventually. Mm. It always, and I mean this with respect, no, seemed like hard work in a way. I think it depends what you listen to, but yes, certainly Stop, and definitely the Pink Floyd stuff. But in 1995, I did what I'd never done before, and I started doing voice training. And from that point... I think that that was just the best thing that I ever did for myself. It was a complete revelation. My voice was much healthier. It is a loud voice. My voice is loud and on any day um, and powerful. But there are other sides to it as well, which if people listen to my albums, they will know that it's not always that kind of shouty voice, you know. But I think you're right. I think I've probably hammered it, you know, oh. and uh, didn't do myself any good. Because you loved it so much by Absolutely the sound of it. Absolutely loved it. I loved singing more than anything else, apart from my children.
<laughs> but I mean, you say so you started having singing training from '95. Yeah. But only 12 years later, your voice was gone. Yeah. Do you think, in retrospect, you should have just not gone for the training? <laughs> it actually made it worse. No, no, definitely not. No, it definitely made it better. I mean, there are things that I recorded in that time that I'm really, really proud of. You know, stop. I was lucky. It was great vocal. The demo of it was really good. It just sort of happened. Recreating it for the actual record was very difficult, funnily enough. But then, you know, when I went on the road, I could only do two gigs in a row singing like that. You know, it was too much without any training. But after training, I mean, I was singing with Jules, and that is a loud band to mm. sing against. And I'd be doing eight gigs, nine, ten more in a row without any problems at all. I very rarely lost my voice. So it definitely helped. Did nobody warn you, if you carry on like this, you're going to have trouble with your voice? I think that you're assuming that the way I sang was the thing that caused the problem with my voice. No, I have heard you talk about the Jules Holland band being so loud, but that really challenged yeah, it too far. It did, but I, don't, I think it's more partly, if not largely, emotional. So I was working a lot, I split up with my husband, and I moved down south with my kids, and I basically had a breakdown, but I continued to work and sing through it all. And then eventually my voice gave up. And I think that when I was having a really tough time, I was just channeling everything into my voice. And I think my voice eventually just went, no, I can't, we're not doing that anymore, you know. I mean, I, I don't know, I have lots of theories, but I don't think that the issue with my voice is necessarily entirely physical. I don't think it, because I've seen so many doctors, mm. that if it was, it would be fixed by now, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so I think there's either a psychological blockage, which, you know, sounds easy, doesn't it, to solve, but it isn't. Have you tried <laughs> therapy? I've had, yeah, two lots of therapy. Psych psychological therapy? It's psychological yeah. therapy, yes, with two different people. I've done two courses of hypnotherapy. I've been hypnotised. I have pursued quite a few things, but the thing is, everything that you pursue, I put everything into it, and inevitably, well, it hasn't worked yet, you know, mm. it hasn't, it, my voice does get better through some things, through mm. some physical therapy, like voice work definitely helps, but I couldn't use it professionally. Years ago, I interviewed Shirley Bassey, oh, wow. and yeah. unfortunately her daughter committed suicide, and Shirley said that for three years she couldn't sing, yeah. for emotional reasons. Yeah. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility no. of hearing, really. <clears throat> no, somebody did once say to me that they thought it was grief, but, you know, you, you can't just go, oh, okay, I'll go and sort that out then. It doesn't work like that, does it? Humans aren't like that. But if I'm holding on to something emotionally, there are many ways of dealing with it, but at the moment they would all involve A, not working, and B, lots of money, and I, I can't do either of those things at the moment. You know, if I could take a few years off to explore every, every option, that would be lovely, but I can't. Have you given up trying to find a cure? Are you I still trying to solve it? I haven't given up, but I have definitely parked it because it's upsetting. To be constantly faced with the problem is upsetting. And I don't mean I sort of cry every time I try and do something about my voice. What I mean is it brings it up to a conscious level in my life so that doing other things is, you know, it's, it's easier to put it aside whilst I have to work and teach mm. people and be jolly and give them something and, and focus on them. And I don't want to always be focused on me. Was there a particular moment where it let you down and you just said, I can't do the same thing. I remember doing a, a corporate gig with Jules next to Tower Bridge about 2006, maybe 2005 even. And I remember being conscious that I had to push to get the note up to pitch, mm. which is very unusual for me. I never had a problem with tuning. And it sort of got worse. And then, beginning of 2007, I had a tour booked in with a band called Homespun which is a group I was in, which was formed by Dave, David Rotheray from the Beautiful South. And I was just a singer. We did a couple of gigs and we had to cancel the tour. I just couldn't do it. I read a music magazine interview you did quite recently where you were kind of 
brushing it off as if ah, it wasn't really to cope with it. But it sounds to me like actually you were really heartbroken at losing your voice, and I'd expect that really. I was, and I and I am. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, one of the tools you learn, I suppose, when you're in in the public eye in any way, is, you know, I, I can't think of anything worse than breaking down or, or you know in front of people or I, I wouldn't wear my emotions in that way. But that's not to say that it hasn't been difficult and it hasn't been heartbreaking because it absolutely has. And I think that there is a sort of low level of kind of depression constantly underneath the surface for me. And it means I have to work a bit harder to just enjoy my life, which oh. is important for me and for the people around me, you know. So I think, yes, it is heartbreaking and it has been and it's very upsetting. And it defined me, singing absolutely defined who I was. So. It's like, who am I without my voice? Hmm. <laughs> it's almost like being a different person. <laughs> because you have such a different singing voice, it's so unique and truly extraordinary. To lose that was a heck of a loss. Yeah, it was. It, it is. I suppose I, I kind of can't come to terms with the idea that I'll never sing again. Hmm. Uh, but at some point, I probably will have to face that if you know, if something doesn't come up or if I don't do something that changes things, no. In the years since, presumably you've had calls from other artists who want you to come and perform with them, mm. do backing vocals or perform with them on stage or on record, and you've had to turn them down, and each time that must be like a little dagger to your heart. Because <laughs> um, you love your work, and you're brilliant at it. Yeah, I know, I, I did love it, and I, and I, you know, I love music, and I love being creative, but I'm quite good at tucking things away, and maybe that's why I lost my voice, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I'm quite good at sort of putting my feelings aside, and maybe for as long as I do that, I will still have no voice, I don't know, mm -hmm. it's, there's, there's still things I can explore. Yes, I think it does hurt, there are, you know, it hurts not to be able to sing with my son, who's a fantastic singer and writer and my daughter who's also musical and my dad you know, can play but I can't sing with them and I can hear it in my head <laughs> but uh, it's not quite the same. No. And what's been the most heartbreaking moment in all these years since? Were you so frustrated by not being able to do your thing? Um, I don't think there's been a particular moment but I think I just miss being able to sit down and play and sing, you know, I just really miss it. That sounds very overly simple, there hasn't been a particular moment, but it is, you know, it's destroyed part of me, I suppose, in mm. a way. I just wondered, I mean, you have a great relationship with your lovely dad, <coughs> and I thought maybe if he was doing a farewell tour, he said, I really need you next to me. Yeah. And you couldn't do it. Well, I know, well, I would do it, but uh, I'd only be there with my ukulele and my accordion. <laughs> I can sing very low harmonies, so I might kind of manage to croak out a couple of harmonies, you know. But uh, I think, really, the bottom line is I've had an amazing career. I've been so lucky, and I can remember what it's like to feel that feeling of being on stage and singing and feeling absolutely at home and, and at one with myself and the audience. Mm -hmm. But it's gone and you know other people have greater problems hmm. well that's that's true nice attitude um, but tell us about the different ways you've tried to resolve it <laughs> just run them through quickly just okay all the different things. voice training uh here voice training with two or three people in the top people in this country voice training in america i've had two operations one here in 2007 and one in 2013 in America. I worked with a voice physio in America. I've done psychotherapy with one person for three years and I can't remember, I think it's one person actually. I've had two courses of hypnotherapy. I've done acupuncture, I've changed my diet, I've stopped drinking, I've stopped, stopped drinking coffee, um, caffeine, you know, really cleaned up my diet. Um, exercise. When I say voice training, I'm talking about five times a day, you know, rigidly doing exercises. I've tried crystal healing. 
I've tried spiritual, uh, what is it when, you know, people sort of draw, try to draw spirits out of it, they tried that. Um, Reiki, was that one? Reiki, maybe yeah. that's it, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably about it. Wow. Remember that film, The King's Speech, with Colin Oh, yes, I and love it. he had a stutter. Yeah. But he met this eccentric guy who could yeah. help him. Mm. I wondered if anyone had offered you someone really different. No. I'm waiting. Okay. <laughs> so you're open to... I think there is somebody out there who could help me. Yeah. But I think it needs to be somebody who understands the voice and who understands the psychological aspects of the voice. Mm. Because the voice is... The voice is emotion, you know. It, it's the seat of emotion, isn't it, the voice? I have this funny thing, actually. If I cry, if I start crying, I can feel there's a sort of gap there somewhere where my voice is in there. So I, I think it is in there. But you, know, you need money to explore these things as well. And I'm, I'm not a rich person. So I'd have to kind of save up. I have each thing I do, I have to save up, not only to, for the treatments, but also to take the time off working. Because... I couldn't teach ukulele and be exploring my emotional state, which is wouldn't work. When you have dreams at night, are you able to sing in your dreams? No. You never imagine you're still on the stage at the Albert Hall giving it your all? No, one of my my hypnotherapy practitioners did something like that with me. To no avail. To no avail. I thought hypnotism was going to work, actually, like Mm. complete... I have thought of writing to... um, What's that bloke? Uh, Paul, Paul McKenna. Paul McKenna, yes. I thought writing to Paul McKenna. All right. Maybe I should. I, I don't know about uh, hypnotism, really. I did go to a guy who worked with Paul McKenna, and the first session was very promising. And the second session, I felt just... And he only got two sessions yes. for 400 quid or something. Mm. I just didn't feel like the focus was there mm. somehow, whether it was me or him, I don't know. Mm. So I'm just curious, because if it's subconscious, then surely hypnotism would work. So if I could sing whilst I was hypnotised, yeah. then that would mean that there would be a path there, presumably, mm. wouldn't there, to mm. follow. With the greatest respect, you're not too far off 60. No. By the time you get to 60 and beyond, wouldn't your voice be failing anyway after a while? No. I'm wrong about that. Well, I don't think so. I mean, it changes, your voice changes. Yeah. And I did think for a long time that it was the menopause. Yes. Yeah. Pass in it. And I still think it could have been, but it could be emotional, it could be physical, mm. you know. Voice definitely changes. I mean, talking about Shirley Bassey, I think she actually at one point didn't sing for about 11 years. I could be oh, wrong about that. I think it was yeah. a long time. Maybe she was only three years into that. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. But um, yes, I think a lot of women go through that change. Yeah. I think of Ella Fitzgerald, I mean, her voice just incredible weight in her 70s. Yeah, but I suppose she just kept on, kept on, kept on performing and recording. But there's quite a few artists now who were once brilliant and for many decades but are now obviously struggling to sing at all. I won't name any names because it wouldn't be fair, but I think we know who we're talking about. (laughs) The very finest ever. And uh, they don't sound too good and they really should pack it in, but... Mm. I think it's just age on their voice, they're just, just not allowing them to do it. Yeah, I think it's that, and also I think for people who've been doing it for a long time, who've been very successful, what else are they going to do? Mm. You know, I mean, my dad is, my dad's fantastic, he's, yes. he's mellowed out a lot, but he is very much from a working class background, and he's always busy, so he, for, for him, he loves music, he loves playing music, but he's been doing it for 70 years. And he loves doing woodwork, so he's up every morning early and he's out in his shed with his lathe and his tools and he's making cupboards or restoring things or what have you. And I think he's got that kind of working class pride as well. I think if he really thought he was not good at what he did anymore, he wouldn't do it, he would just stop. Um, I think for some people that's not even, they just don't see that at all. Or perhaps they can't see themselves from the outside. In recent times, you've taken to playing the ukulele on stage rather than singing. How does the <laughs> thrill compare? It doesn't. <laughs> well, first of all, playing the uke is... I, I discovered that I could teach people. I'm quite patient. I think that if you spoke to my pupils, they'd say that I'm very patient. And I 
met some amazing and some very lovely people. I've met some very bonkers people as well. And it's been a complete, it's taken me into sort of old musical carry on up the uke mentality because of course the ukulele is all about wine shirts and pork pie hats. So the first thing I did on our first gig was I banned everyone from wearing Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> but I discovered I could teach and I really enjoy it and I've seen lots of people discover things about themselves and I love that. I'm not an amazing youth player. I'm pretty good but you know I'm not sort of Jake Shinnokun or Andy Eastwood or Peter Watson. Or George Formby. Or George Formby, no. Well, it's interesting because there's so much more to the ukulele than, I mean, George Formby's amazing, but the ukulele was around a long time before that. And it's, you can, you can write, write on the uke, it's, it's fantastic, but like all the old jazz standards, they sound great on the uke. You know. But teaching requires talking. <coughs> Doing things like this requires talking. Has any of the practitioners who's tried to treat you said to you, stop talking for a year or two? <laughs> no, no. I've breasted my voice. Um, but the other thing I did, which I don't know if I said, was speech therapy. So I've worked with two different speech therapists as well. Um, no, no one said that. Because with respect, your voice does sound quite delicate still. Yeah. I, and I'm kind of worried about you because I think, should I be putting her through this? I know, that's difficult, and I worry about that with my pupils because it must be, I think it must be quite difficult sometimes to listen to, but I think they've, they've got used to it, and I do use a microphone when I teach because I couldn't possibly shout to a, a large room for people, that just wouldn't happen. So they unfortunately have to listen to me croaking through the songs, and oh. that is difficult, and that may be the thing that makes me stop doing oh. it because my voice isn't getting better, it's getting worse, if anything. Is there anything that you take on a daily basis to try and ease your throat or whatever it is? No, I don't believe that you know honey and lemon isn't going to solve this problem. I think it's a, um, I think it's muscular, and I think the muscles aren't allowing my voice to work efficiently. So the voice is you've got two uh, vocal cords, mm -hmm. and they're tiny. They're about the size of your little fingernail, mm -hmm. and they run parallel. And they sit at the top of your windpipe. So the air comes through and that creates the sound. And when the air comes through, the vocal cords are like a butterfly, they vibrate. But they vibrate at about 400 times a second, more for higher notes and less for lower notes. So what happens is you get, if you get air in the sound, then the vocal cords aren't meeting properly. They're not working efficiently. And so the sound sounds airy or raspy or unclear. And I understand that, and I can do exercises to help with that. Mm. There's a thing called voice hygiene, mm. so that's you're not supposed to clear your throat. Mm. Um, lots of water, you shouldn't really drink cold water, steam is very good for your voice. I mean, I know all these things, I sang for 35 years, and I did a lot of voice training, and I think it's not that, it's something much more functional than that. When you're in the shower, or in the bath, or in the car, listening to a song that you love, do you ever just think, fuck it, I'm going to sing along? I've tried. <laughs> and it just doesn't sound no, right. nothing, you, you stop. I can't get, an, if I can, I can get notes down low here, mm -hmm. but if I go any higher, and say a G or an A, then I just can't get, ha, 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 ha. It just won't, you don't get that clear sound, which means there's something wrong either technique or something in the way or a different reason. Has there been a lot of tears over this? A lot of yeah. weeping and wailing? <laughs> um, yes, I think so over the years, yeah. Not not so much recently, but yeah, it's hard and I and I find it very upsetting if I have to I mean teaching is really hard. Um, I try not to let my pupils see that every time I have to sing a song. So it's quite good with a lot of groups because they all sing, so I can get them singing. But when they don't sing, I have to lead it. Because if I stop singing, they just stop, they grind to a halt. So it's about the energy. But I can still put the energy in without being able to sing, but it's incredibly difficult for me to listen to myself trying to sing a song. And I do find that upsetting sometimes, like come away sometimes. 
from teaching thinking I just can't keep doing this because it's, it's painful. So you've got a new album out and usually an artist would tour an album, do some concerts to promote it, but I guess you can't. Well, no, I couldn't. So if you said, can you come and sing me a few songs from the album, I wouldn't be able to do it. But I'm starting to think that there, if it was successful and there was a little bit of money there, I could do it with maybe if I had singers with me, backing singers. To cover you. To cover me. Uh, to strengthen it, but I think I could do a lead vocal because it's all, when you hear it, you'll hear it's very low. In fact, my dear old dad, when I played him one of the songs, said, "Who's that bloke singing?" <laughs> so thanks, Dad. Yeah, really helpful. <laughs> so uh, no, no chance of taking yourself too seriously in our family. <laughs> I wouldn't do it if I was completely not singing. I'd have to be doing it. Okay. Um, but you can get little bits of uh, equipment where you can also tune yourself as you sing. Um, so I can sing sort of just about in tune, but if it's auto-tuned, then it sounds proper. Does that make sense? Yes. You wouldn't go on stage in mine, then? Probably not. No, I don't think so. I mean, I would mine if it was part of promotion, hmm. um, because for me, you know, I think it's a really good album, and I feel like it's a triumph. It's a personal triumph for me, in a way. I don't sort of feel big-headed about it, but I'm just really thrilled that I've managed to overcome the loss of my voice and make a piece of work that I think is actually really interesting. I don't think everyone will like it. It's very different to everything I've done in the past. But, you know, if they said, will you come and do lip-sync on TV in Europe, and, you know, and you'd go out and just do one, I would do that. I wouldn't go on tour with it and lip right. the whole thing. And this is your first new studio album since? 2007, yeah. So it must mean an awful lot to you to at least bring something out, even if it's not totally how you'd like it. Yes, it is. If I thought the album was shit, I wouldn't release it. But it's just had such an amazing reaction from people. And I, you know, I would have made it anyway because I, I love doing things and we had a great time doing it. But then my friend Danny, he said, look, you, you've got to put this out there, it's really good, you know. So we played it to a few people and got a really good reaction and I thought, well, for me, it's worth just putting a little bit of my uh, hard-earned waters into it and just give it a little bit of a helping hand, try and get it out there a little bit. And also that will only do me good because obviously there's my back catalogue and any raising in profile is going to be good for all of that stuff. I'm sure you realise that you know all writers' incomes have gone down because of streaming. So for me, my royalties have been a lifesaver and I would really like to keep them as good as they can be. Yes, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's my pension. How do you feel looking back at your young self on videos? Please? I mean, have you been doing that during this time where you've been unable to sing <clears throat> crying thinking oh god yeah no absolutely had a few nights on youtube with a, with a bottle of wine definitely yeah that was me and really one, yeah. reflecting on oh how you yeah used to in be. the early days you know 2009 2010 yeah absolutely i didn't do it very often but if i did it was just yeah it was heartbreaking it was heartbreaking yes looking at your old videos yeah for instance. yeah yeah you're very forthcoming and warm and friendly. <laughs> Your dad's the same, though, isn't he? I mean, you grew up in that yeah, kind of yeah. a situation, I think. Yeah. Well, I think Dad was quite an old-fashioned dad, though. You know, when Dad was home, everyone was quiet. And, really? Yeah, yeah. He, he was strict. He was great as well, because he instilled some, some fantastic old-fashioned values, I think. Yeah. You know, the work ethic, which frankly has always done either of us any good, I don't think. Me and my brother and my dad will probably work to kill ourselves, uh, which isn't a good thing. But I'm glad that I've got that because I, I love working. I still love working. I really enjoy it. Yeah. So yeah, it was it was all about work and music, and that's just what my life was about. It wasn't about. I didn't feel particularly good about myself. My mum was very beautiful. Was it inevitable that you would become a singer, go into music, because of your parents? Probably, yeah. I didn't really ever do anything else. Have you ever looked back and thought, I wish I had done something else? <laughs> no. Good. Well, that's nice to hear, isn't no, it? No, I haven't. I've had the most amazing life. Yes. Was there a moment when you were a child 
when you started singing, and it was like a little voice moment, if you know what I mean, <laughs> where somebody heard you upstairs and thought, what the hell? Yeah. Who are they? <laughs> voice? Where's that come from? Well, my mum was very encouraging and I used to go to sessions with her. But uh, I had a very odd childhood. I mean, my mum and dad were away touring most of the time. And we were often left to our own devices, uh, which suited both my brother and myself. He was out in the shed playing with the motorbikes, and I was playing piano and writing songs, or listening to music, or knitting, and of course going to school. So um, we didn't see mum and dad a lot. I don't think anyone went, wow, you're amazing, you've got, you know, a star is born. There was never a moment like that. Never. No, it was, oh, can you come and sing this for us, Sam? Mm. There was that, being booked for sessions, when mm. I was at 12, 13. So I kind of slid into it, really. Now, I know your mum was in the Burns Girls with Joyce Wilde. Yes. But I always kind of imagined that you and Kim would have grown up together. Kim's a bit older than me, only a little bit. Mm. Um, and also, she was really cool. I mean, she was the coolest person I'd ever met. And I was really in awe of her. I remember her coming to the house and she had these kind of red and black striped tight black trousers on and this kind of little jacket. And I was like, oh God, she's so cool. And I think I probably didn't really say much. I think when she was 17, I was 12. Was it quite tough having a famous dad? Were you teased at school? Or um, when we were at primary school, we were, yeah, because we, uh, dad, mum and dad sent us to a private school, um, and of course there was a lot of kids from a very different background to us. We were sort of poverty boys, really, and behaved as such, having been taught to do so by my dad. <laughs> but after that, not really, no. Uh, I think I was quite a quiet kid, actually. Mm. I wasn't a very loud kid. But we did get teased at primary school. It didn't really bother me too much. Yeah, I, I, it's hard, isn't it? When you're a child, you don't have anything to hold it up against or compare it to. So yeah. to me, it was just normal life. I would thought it would be considered cool to have a rock star dad. Well, I think the general consensus in the playground was you think you're better than everyone else because your dad's famous. I think it was probably that. Didn't scar you for life, though, didn't it? I don't think so. No. Maybe that's why I lost my voice. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying every theory. <laughs> What memories do you have of your dad's career, which was sort of, you know, huge in the 60s? Yeah. Do you have many memories of his big career, or was he quite quiet when you were growing up? Well, in the 60s, Dad built one of the first multi-track recording studios in the country, uh, which was in Chigwell in Essex. Mm. So we grew up in a recording studio. There were hippie parties, so you'd come down in the morning and there'd be bodies wow. over the floor and all that sort of stuff. But it was all very good fun. It was all people we knew. There were musicians that Dad worked with, and Pete and I both loved the studio. And we spent a lot of time in there, and I certainly did singing there as well as a kid. So who came round to your house when you were a kid, or to <laughs> oh, your studio oh, well, that Steve, you remember? Steve Marriott was a big... A uh, mm. friend of my mum and dad's, he was around a lot. Yeah. It was great. I think Stevie Wonder once came to the house. Wow. Uh, David Gilmore recorded at the studio, and there were lots of other people at, at the studio in Essex, but really I met more people when we moved out to Oxfordshire, because dad moved out to Oxfordshire mm. where all of his friends and mm. peers lived. So Alvin Lee, Mick Ralphs, George Harrison, David Gilmore. Jim Capaldi, there's this whole gang of, of musicians in the 70s. Madeline Bell didn't live out there, but they used to visit. And there, we had a lot of parties. So, yeah, I did meet a lot of people. But because you were raised in it, you wouldn't have sort of got that excited, I imagine. You kind of took it for granted. Was there anyone, though, who came round and really perhaps paid you a lot of attention you never forgotten? <laughs> Uh, well, Steve Marriott was very kind to me. Yes. He, he chatted, he was very funny. Yes. Um, and Dave Gilmore as well <coughs> became a friend and, and helped me with some of my first songs when I first started. But you know, the thing is, is as a child, celebrity doesn't mean anything, does it? You know, they're just people, really, they were just people to me. And I think when I then went out into the world and when I started looking for a record deal, I was actually quite shocked at people's attitudes um, because. So my dad was famous, but my dad was just a bloke like anyone else's dad. 
to me, if you know what I mean. So I think I've probably got a slight aversion to celebrity. You didn't have a favourite pop star yourself <laughs> who you had posters of on your wall. I didn't actually, no. Mm. I like singer-songwriters, so I bought albums. So it was the music that I liked. So Steve Wonder, Mountain Newman, Joan Mitchell, Ricky Jones, Kate Bush. I do remember, though, when I was a bit younger, liking the Bay City Rollers. And did you get to meet them? No, no, oh. no. She was a, was a fan girl when I was about okay. 10 or 11, I think. Did you see them live? When you went out, because your dad was very famous and very loved and very popular still, did he get hassled a lot? Just oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. He, he did, still does, you know. Mm. I remember going to restaurants and the maitre d' would come out and go, Mr. Brown, Mr. Brown, it's really lovely to see you. And he'd put his arm around my dad, completely ignore the rest of the family, including my beautiful mum, and whisk my dad off, you know. And it was like, well, what about us? <laughs> We're here. We're people, you know. And I object to that. I don't like rudeness, whether someone's famous or not. And, uh, so I didn't like that much. George Harrison was certainly megastar. What was it like when he came round to your house? Were you besieged with fans? And well, he <laughs> he was just the most normal bloke. He was lovely. They're all lovely. Olivia's lovely. Danny's lovely. Really nice people. George was brutally honest. Very straight. Loved his garden. I mean, there is always going to be an element of, you know, he has a lot more money than I do, so his life is very different, you know. Uh, there's that. But as far as people go, he was a really nice bloke. Oh, absolutely. He was a really nice bloke. Yes. What special moment do you have in your memory of George? I have two moments. I went and sang on something for George, some backing vocals for him. And he went out into the garden and he came back and it was autumn. And he brought a leaf from him. He gave me a leaf mm. from his garden. And it was just really beautiful colours. I've still got the leaf. That was lovely. And the other thing that he and Olivia did was when my mum was dying, they had a group of singers from Bulgaria called the Trio Bulgarka. And it was three ladies who sang in that Bulgarian way. I don't know if you remember it, it was quite popular. And they had very strident, strong, clear voices and they sang in very close harmony, very kind of folky, you know. And George and Olivia had flown them over to do concerts. Then they had them at their house at Fry Park one night. Well, my mum was very ill. It was about, I guess, about a month before she died. And so they had me and my mum and my aunt over and we just sat there and they did this special show to my mum. And I just thought that was the most amazing thing to do. Mm. But my mum knew George way before my dad did. Yeah. So Your dad and him were definitely close. They were definitely really. close, yeah. George was his best man at his second place. But you did perform at the Albert Hall for his uh, I did, memorial concert. Amazing, yeah. yeah. One of the best nights of your career? Definitely. It was just an electric atmosphere, and also from a completely selfish point of view, because I went with Jules, you know, Jules and I went together to that concert, and I walked onto the stage at Soundcheck, and there were all these amazing people that I'd worked with over the years who were treating me as their equal, and that was a fantastic feeling, mm. you know, having said all that I've said about celebrity. You know, I mean, I've worked with Eric Clapton quite a few times, and Danny Harrison was there, and Billy Preston played, who I hadn't met before, Jeff Lynn, Andy Fairweather the Lowe. There were all these people who just treated me as an equal and were really genuinely pleased to see me there, and that was just amazing. Mm. And the gig was just incredible. I mean, you know, I've sung at the Albert Hall a lot of times in my life, and it was like a it was like a different place. It was absolutely magical, beautiful, and the atmosphere was incredible. The musicians were incredible. The music was was fantastic. Everything about it was just brilliant. Did you meet all the Beatles? I didn't meet John. No. He'd gone by the time. Yeah, I'd met Ringo and I'd met Paul. But it doesn't give you an extra buzz like it would the rest of us. Not really, no. Right. But that's rather good for it, them. It so. makes me nervous sometimes because I think it is nerve-wracking being around somebody who's famous, you know. But you're famous. I'm not famous. <laughs> I'd say so. Uh, I'm a celebrity one-hit wonder. That's how I describe myself. It's funny you say that, Sam, <laughs> because 
last night I decided I'd watch the remind myself of the video of stock on YouTube and there's loads and loads of comments underneath it mm. from followers, fans, people watching it and so many of them saying what an amazing song, what an amazing voice why wasn't this artist a huge megastar? What's your answer? Did you want to be? To be? <clears throat> I wasn't very ambitious and I, I mean I don't know for sure but I'm guessing I might have been slightly stroppy and a bit aggressive when I was younger. <laughs> I can't imagine you being difficult though, because you really are very giving and warm, aren't you? Well, yeah. But you're not always like this. No, no, I am actually. I mean, I, I am pretty much, well, not all the time, obviously. I don't think anyone is all the time. But um, I think that my music definitely could have been more successful than it was. But it just wasn't. And what can I do about that? All I can do is make the music and give it to the record company who put it out and do what they do with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the record company in England, they released Stop in 1987 and, and the radio stations here wouldn't play it. And some of the regionals would. And it went to number one in Holland, where they really loved it. And then they tried again here with it. But it's not like you didn't do your bit. You promoted that for three years. I know. Back to the detriment of your own career, really. Yeah. Because rather than talking to journalists like me, you could have been in the studio producing even more gems. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I, I'm really proud of all my al- albums. Yeah, quite right. um, yeah. And I, I'm happy with them. But I'm also very philosophical. It was never an issue for me. I was never particularly ambitious. I didn't think I need, I want to be famous. I never thought that. It was about making music for me, always. Now, in retrospect, if I'd been able to foresee that I'd lose my voice, I might have been a bit more careful with money. Oh, OK. <laughs> So now you're renting a place in Dorset and you're having to teach because you need some income. Yeah. Your royalties are not enough to keep you going? No. I mean, you co-wrote Stop and it was a mega hit. Mm. Well, it's, it's pretty good, but it's not enough. I have to work as well. And especially putting this album out because, of course, you need to spend money to release an album, don't you? Yes. Mm. As well as having your own hits, you've done a lot of backing vocals for other artists. What other hits have you worked on? Other people's hits? I sang with Adam and the Ants years ago. Any particular song? No. Can't remember? I can't remember. Okay. Actually, I can't remember. I have a terrible memory for these things because okay. it's not really important to me. I'm proud of all the songs my mum sang on, you know. Okay. Uh, come as. up and see me, make me oh, smile. Cockney yes. Rebel, T Rex, all the T Rex stuff. Yeah. 20th Century Boy. Yeah. Loads of sort of 50s, 60s artists, Helen Shapiro, yes. Tony Christie, loads and loads. My mum yeah. sang loads of people, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd. You sang Pink Floyd? Yeah, so yeah. And you were on one of their big albums? Yeah, Pulse. Yeah, yeah. that was good. And you have worked with a lot of other artists. Has it only ever been as a backing vocalist? Mostly singing. Right. I worked with Colin Vernkin from Black. That was great. He was really good. Yeah. Mum and I did uh, backing vocals for Elton John in 1985. That was amazing. Uh, it was a Prince's Trust concert. Anything <laughs> funny happen or whatever when you've been with these people? I haven't really got an Elton John story because when you you don't see him. I mean, I, mm. I think I've spoken to him very briefly a few yeah. words. So, but I remember Eric Clapton. It's quite sad, really, in a way. We were doing Party at the Palace which was Brian May, um, Eric Clapton, Phil Collins, mm-hmm. Cliff Richard, Desk Club 7, Ray, Tom Jones, Tom Jones mm-hmm. Joe Cocker, Ray Davis. And we were rehearsing, and I always used to love rehearsals. They're my favourite. I much prefer rehearsals, because you get to kind of have a cup of tea and go off, and you know, you're doing backing vocals. It's great fun. And Eric's new wife came in with their newborn son, and he was holding her, and she was smiling and giggling. And Eric is a very poker-faced man. And I went up to him, I said, a lovely, happy baby. He said, yeah, I know. I said, well, she, she doesn't get it from you, does she, Eric? And he, he just laughed. It was really funny. But, uh, yeah, she was really happy, and it was he was obviously very happy as well. Yes. Well, that's yeah. nice. Any other superstars that you... No. I tend not to hang around too much because I'm usually in the bar. (laughs) 
I'll tell you what was good once was um, I was doing a gig with Deep Purple. Yes. And Ian Gillen and I were in the bar and we'd had a few drinks and I had this like a chiffon, quite slinky dress on. And uh, he said, Oh, I like your dress. I said, Do you want to try it on? He said, Yeah, go on then, let's swap. So he's my dress never smelled the same after that. <laughs> How did you look in your dress? Oh, fantastic, of course, fabulous. <laughs> I think you probably rocked it, to be honest with you. Did you ever have any Me Too moments in your early career? No. Uh, oh, well, not that were really problematic. We couldn't get stopped played at, at the BBC. And Clark said, look, he said, this is the second time around. He said, have you got a miniskirt? I said, I don't know if I have, actually. Will you wear a miniskirt? He said, well, try and find a short skirt and get the, the boobs out. And we're going to go and meet one of the producers. And I want you to tell the filthiest jokes you can. Mm. I can't actually remember the producer's name, I'm pleased to say. And lo and behold, on the playlist it went. <laughs> wow, what was the joke? Well, that's very true, actually, yeah. I can't remember. I think there were probably a few terrible jokes. Because you've got the sort of laugh that would go with a dirty joke. Oh, well, yeah, no, that's true, I have, yeah. <laughs> now, several people have covered Stop, yeah. which, as uh, a co-writer, you'd be thrilled about. Absolutely, especially Joe Bonamassa. Thank you very much, Joe. Oh, right, OK. Yeah. That's been your favourite cover. I like it because it's completely different to the original. Mm. I think when people try to sing it the way I've sung it, I don't really understand that because... What's the point? What's the point? It's them. It's for them. They should have their own take on it. You know, make it their own, as they say. Because Jamelius was very similar to yours. It was, yes. Yeah. So you kind of think, why wasn't I on the Bridget Jones Well, yeah. Well, I think it was a profile thing. I think Jamelia was just much more popular and was going to give them more publicity probably at that stage. I understand why, and I have no problem with it. Are you quite protective of your catalogue, particularly that? Absolutely not. Classic? No, I, anyone can do any of my songs mm. if they like. No, I'm not protective at all. It's great if you do so, because it's the ultimate compliment, isn't it? Bridget Jones is one of my favourite films ever, and I'm sure you loved it too. I did, but the, I think it wasn't the original in the first film, or was it Jamelia? But you must have been thrilled to have it. I, I was, really Me. thrilled. I'm really thrilled. And it's in a Roman Polanski film as well, which I don't think I've ever seen something about Moon. Oh, yes, Bitter Moon. Yeah. And were you ever offered any acting? I did a couple of bits. I played Ellie Greenwich <coughs> in a sort of one-off pilot to the theatre show at the Duke of York Theatre and I thoroughly enjoyed it and really loved it and I was in a film with B.A. Robertson when I was about 13 or 14 <laughs> called Living Apart Together well I was yeah. just a singer in a, a club I think or something like that mm. just singing a song Is there anyone that you haven't worked with that you really wanted to work with or perhaps you turned down because you were too busy doing something else and you thought damn it well, I turned Pink Floyd down three times before I actually did the, mm. the talk. Um, no, I think uh, it's not quite an answer to your question, but I really love to work with, you know, there are contemporary artists who I think are fantastic. I love Sia. I think she's brilliant. I think she's very, very talented. I can't imagine she'd ever sort of want to work with the likes of me, but that would be great. And about the royals, have you met any of the royal family? I met Diana and Charles uh, yeah, after the second Princess Trusky. Tell us about Diana. She was very sweet. I bet. They were both so thin. I was really worried about them. They were very thin, very polite, very lovely. I think Prince Charles made some humorous, sorry, King Charles, made a slightly derogatory humorous remark about my mum and I's dresses, which were perhaps a bit saucy, so, oh, <laughs> something like he working later or something. You know? <laughs> I don't think that was his exact word, no. but, uh, or do you ladies always dress like this? Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were just lovely, very, very charming, really charming, yeah. both of them, and interested, you know, yeah, chatty. And Diana, perhaps one of the most beautiful women you've ever seen, was she quite a vision, or just too thin? 
beautiful, but perhaps could have done with put maybe a shepherd's pie. Could be. And um, I imagine a lot of people feel you should be given some kind of an honour. Yeah. It's a great contribution, really. Do you aspire to being Dave Sam or, or Sam Brown CBE or MBE? Well, the idea seems ludicrous to me. I don't know. I, I'm in two minds. On the one hand, I think everyone should have an honour, really. And I, and I know some people who are amazing who will never be recognised for being amazing. But I think... Equally, it's a very positive thing to happen to somebody, you know, probably would be very, very happy um, if something like that happened to me. I actually nominated my dad for an honour, so... And to no avail? No, he, he got it. Oh, he did? Oh, that's great, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Do you feel you've been given the credit you deserve as an artist, fully recognised? By my fellow musicians, yes. By the music industry, no. Why not by the music industry? What is missing? I just think that the music could have been much more successful. It's probably partly my own fault, I'm sure, because you know, it's the right place at the right time and the right people. I think maybe I just didn't ever fit the description of what a pop star looks like or is like. And I did go out without makeup on occasionally. It's your right, though, isn't it? Yeah. So, but you, so. you certainly worked hard, did your bit for promotion and stuff. I did Do you feel work, they yeah. didn't get behind you enough then to boost your... Maybe, maybe. I, I don't know, I perhaps have a, a naive attitude towards how hits are made. And I think somebody decides, you know, this is going to be a hit and that's what happens. And I think I just wasn't ever that person. I didn't push myself in the right way. I wasn't hungry enough for it, perhaps. I think the music was there, though, and I think it's a failing of the music industry on the whole, that it, you know, it recognises the few, but not the many. There's so much room for music. All the music should be there for everybody, should be available, and it's not. It's either, you know, either the really, really famous people, or it's nothing. You know, you've got two choices. So if you could go back in time knowing what you do now, you'd do things pretty differently to make sure you weren't in this position that you're in now. <coughs> Um, I think I might be a bit more sensible, yeah, with, with things. But I was pretty sensible. I, I took out pensions and I bought property when I was very young. It's just that my life didn't go in a, in a different way. Mm. So I don't blame anyone or I don't feel resentful about it. Uh, I just think, yes, I, you know, if you had that thing of knowing what I know now, if I could go back, then yes, I would have made some different decisions. You do quite a bit of, if only I'd done this. No. When you think what you could have been, really, with your talent. And no, I'm very happy with how my life has been. And yeah, that's good. I am. I think, you know, if it had been different and I had been more successful, then my musical experiences would be very different. I might oh. not have been on the concert for George. I might not have been singing great in the sky. I might not have been, you know, shouting out the blues with Jules Holland. So, very happy, really, with what's happened. I would like my voice back, though, please, now. Oh. Maybe I could help you. Is there one particular thing that happened in your career that you really is your favourite moment? Playing in the Albert Hall, playing in front of Bill Lyndon or something, you just think that was my favourite moment to look back on? Or are there too many? Well, there are a lot. I think the obvious ones are the concert for George was incredible, singing, touring with Pink Floyd was amazing, um, singing with George was amazing. But the flip side of it is that I used to go out and just do shows on my own, and I loved doing that. And there was one particular show, which was in Glasgow, at a little gig called King, King Tuts. And my friend Lisa Gray, who used to play sax at Jules, came with me and played sax. And we had such a great time. Mm. We laughed a lot. We had great fun with the music. Mm. And those memories are as important as the big highlights. How much do you get recognised now? Never. Well, unless you give your name, presumably, they go... Well, some people do, yeah. Some yes. people, like on a cab in London, they right. go, oh, yeah, I know you, you know. Right. So people remember the song. Yes. Do people think you were a one-hit wonder? Because you did have half a dozen hits. Well, I had two or three. I think I'm a one-hit wonder. But I think that it's broader than that, isn't it? Because I've been doing music for so long and I pop up in lots of different places. So lots of people went to see Jules Holland. 
There's all the Pink Floyd stuff, there's concert for George, all of that stuff now is filtering through social media. So my career now is very different, you know, it's, it's a different form to, to what it used to have. How would you like to be remembered after you leave this planet? I'd like to be remembered as supportive and encouraging. <laughs> and from the point of view of your own career, your own achievements? I'd really like people to hear my music because in a way my albums tell my life story. Sam, thank you so much. Absolute thank pleasure you. to meet you and to talk to you. I really do appreciate yeah. it. No, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you.